Hello again, dear listener. This is the moment where I would like to let you know that the show has begun. This is it. Welcome to Fine, a previously recorded evening of storytelling and otherwise. This episode took place on August 27th, 2018 at the Lido which is on the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, or Vancouver, BC. You'll be hearing from some of the excellent lineup of writers and comedians we had that night, including Kerry Donaldson, Savannah Erasmus, Selena Bowen, and Kevin Chong. And throughout the episode, you'll hear music from Future Star, who you can find on iTunes and Bandcamp. The track we started the show with today is called I Want to Travel Back in Time and Tell You This Joke That I Made Up. And I would also like to tell you that we have a live show coming up on October 29th at the Lido that you can come and check out if you'd like. I think it's going to be a real nice one. For more info on that, go to affineshow.com or follow us on the social medias at affineshow. And I am your host, Cole Nowicki. All right, let's get on with it. Enjoy the show. Up first, we have Carrie Donaldson, a local improviser, sketch performer, and comedian. She performs monthly with Nasty Women at the Biltmore Cabaret and with her duo Brunch Comedy at Little Mountain Gallery. Here's Carrie. I want to travel back in and tell you this joke Hello. Hi. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hi. My name is Karen Linda Gailson, and I am the head of communications and marketing for Whole Foods Canada. And I am very pleased to be here today at this employee conference to speak with all my fellow Whole Foodies. Where are my foodies at? There you are. About an exciting change that's coming to our stores. As you all have probably heard, the rumors are true. (laughs) We will be stocking and selling cannabis in all of our storefront locations in the next quarter. And we here at corporate could not be more excited, okay? (laughs) Let's just say we've got a little bit of that reefer madness. Oh yeah. As of October 17th, marijuana will be legal in Canada, and we are looking to be on the precipice of this exciting venture and be one of the industry leaders in supplying that dank crank. (laughs) I understand you must all have a lot of questions, and I hope to be able to shed some light on these upcoming changes and what this will mean for our company as a whole as we move into this new frontier together. To commence, the weed we will be wholesaling is all organic, vegan, cruelty-free, free-range, and gluten-free. Marketing is looking into rebranding some of the names, but the the main ones we will be selling are Black Tar Heroin, Purple Kush, Green Crack, Golden Goat, Girl Guide Cookies, And my personal favorite, a purple Urkel. Did I smoke that? (laughs) It's funny because it is true. We are looking into acquiring some more strains and hybrids, but for now we're sticking to these sticky ickies as our flagship herb. In terms of serving our patrons, If a customer comes in asking for assistance in selecting some skunk, we will be training select staff to be our designated whole food buds. (laughs) They will be our resident ganja sommeliers, and training will consist of a week-long retreat to one of our growing sites in Kelowna, led by their head developer for distribution, a 24-year-old who goes by Nards. This will get us familiar with the plant and its origins, so as to be able to better pass on this expertise to our customers. (laughs) Just remember to pass to the left. (laughs) Hold for applause. (laughs) 
Speaking of, we will probably have to smoke a quick J with nards in his rec room and talk about pit bulls for a period of time. But flat coke and pickles will be offered inexplicably. Uh, after a look at the warehouses and some tastings of some Nards' loose pocket roaches, uh, there will be a meet and greet with one of our external partners, Calvin Cordizar Brodis Jr., known colloquially as Snoop Dogg, uh, followed by a Q&A with Willie Nelson's tour manager, Stinky Pete. Not to harshen your buzz, my Whole Food dudes, uh, but there are a few rules we must implement. No smoking or getting this shit lit during your shifts. I'm serious, guys, okay? I'm serious. We ask that you wait till after your shift is complete before you chase the green dragon. Please do not get high on your own supply when working at the samples counter, okay? I'm very serious about that one. You will be permitted one hit from the bong at 420, but if you become in any way political or way too into Game of Thrones, we will ask you to go home without pay. <laughs> Dreads will be permitted, but not if you identify as white. <laughs> we will be closed on April 20th as a stat holiday, and you will get time and a half of Graham. The break room will have a giant fish tank, but please, guys, don't stare at it for longer than your permitted break times, okay? If you insist on vaping, don't be smug about it, okay? Especially if you are a white male. And if your name is Chad, you are not permitted to vape at all per our policy of eliminating plastic bags and douchebags. We are very excited you guys uh, that Whole Foods family is including the Sheba and with that our new staff uniforms okay have you guys gotten it yet if you haven't uh, it's an oversized I don't do Mondays Garfield t-shirt <laughs> board shorts they are not flattering on anyone trust me and potleaf vans please let me know if your t-shirt is not baggy enough and we will reorder more from Kyle's basement Please, uh, also, if you'd like to substitute your vans for Birkenstocks, you're more than welcome with a doctor's note and a few notes from a Grateful Dead song. But they must be approved by a shift super or a deadhead, and they must be worn with socks. I will be a stickler on this, okay? I don't like toes. <laughs> I don't want to step on them, but they're gross. After additional review, the board has decided to not allow any hemp jewelry on account of it being V-lame. I know this will come as a disappointment to some of our senior associates, okay? I did lobby for y'all. I did. I'm sorry, Janet. I know you were getting into this type of lame-ass hobby, but uh, my hands are tied. <laughs> but not with hemp. <laughs> We've anticipated the use of the parking lot for blazing and hacking the sack, okay? We just ask that you stay within the allocated stalls that are, that are designated with a pot leaf, okay? It's right there on the ground. Uh, if you can't notice them, though, they are the row of stalls directly across from the SEV. That's a 7-Eleven. That being said, there is a zero tolerance for any devil sticks. And if we notice any on the premises, it will be grounds for immediate termination, okay? Oh, boy. I'm looking at you, Janet on that one. I am looking at you. Uh, drones will be allowed so long as nobody makes one look like a stupid spaceship. In related news, our annual employee team building retreats will no longer be held at the Weston Conference Center in Edmonton. We are grateful though to, for the prolonged hospitality, okay? Shout out to Edmonton. But will now take place at Black Rock Desert in Nevada during what is known as Burning Man. It is not mandatory, though you are encouraged to participate or risk being labeled some kind of poser or narc, okay? And again, I am looking at you, Janet, okay? Of course, not everyone will be pleased to hear of our company's newest sales stream. And if people call in to complain about us now offering that sweet row, please forward their calls to the pre-recorded voicemail line that plays Cypress Hill on loop until they eventually hang up. One staff member will be designated per shift to pick up the line every 10 minutes to ask them who they are and what they want 
and then to let them know that they'll need to be transferred and then immediately put them back on hold again. In these changing times, you guys, my foodies, we as a company and leading purveyor of foods and family-focused business values want to make sure we're on the right side of history with this one and are fully embracing these new world ideals that are reflective in the legalization and consumerism of giggly smoke. We see it not only as an opportunity to make some serious cash flow, but as the first of many steps in the undoing of the systematic oppression of society through the control of a substance that Big Pharma wanted to ban so that they could continue to prescribe their patented chemicals that keep us sick from and apathetic and profit off of our suffering. Meanwhile, the government is making money off of it through the private prison systems that are locking up mostly minorities for possession of a substance that grows everywhere naturally. It's a weed, you doyors. It's a natural substance, but you can't patent a living thing. And that's where the problems arise from the government who would rather make it legal and create a campaign of fear than embrace the change of, okay, and I hear it and I've become a little bit too political. Okay, that, that purple Urkel sneaks up on you. <laughs> did I do that? <laughs> I did, I did. Okay, well, you know what? It looks like it's almost 420, so I'm gonna leave you with a newly revised company mission statement. If you can all recite it with me. Hey, 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 smoke weed every day. <laughs> Thank you, guys. There is a complimentary tea, coffee, and a bong, and a hit from some blunts in the lobby. Meeting adjourned. Adjourned? Adjourned. That's a weird word. Up next is Savannah Erasmus, an indigenous woman from Keekinum, Alberta, co-host of the fantastic comedy-slash-poetry show Millennial Line, and a self-described baby comic who attempts to use comedy plus laughter to dissect the colonial stereotypes that she has believed her entire life, all the while laughing at her damn self. Here's Savannah. Hello. I'm Savannah. <laughs> How is everybody? Okay, it's better than expected. So, um, so I just wanted to start off by talking about um, the inappropriate questions that men ask me. Uh, I'm not white, so they ask me, what are you? <laughs> Like, what is my race? They ask me if I am East Indian, if I'm from Sri Lanka, if I'm from South America. And my response is always, well, I'm, I'm actually a part of a superior species here on Earth. And we're going to outlive everybody. <laughs> I am a vegan. <laughs> Thank you for asking. <laughs> okay. Um, that's a real question that is that men ask me often, almost daily. And to be honest, I really hate this question because when I was growing up, I was taught to hate myself, to hide myself, and to be ashamed of who I am and where I come from. So when, and when someone asks me, Savannah, what are you? And I say, I'm indigenous, they recoil. And they say, but you don't look indigenous and this makes me sad because the media representation that exists in Canada and in North America is extremely negative of indigenous people like when I was growing up the only role model that I had to look up to that looked like me 
with Pocahontas. So that's why I only date white guys. <laughs> I think I followed her example too, like, too well, you know? <laughs> Took it too seriously. Um, like, if you know me, you know that I literally actually only date white guys. <laughs> like, my type is, are you currently or have you ever worn a polo shirt? because I will fuck you. <laughs> and if you have ever worn khaki pants, I will ask you inappropriate questions. <laughs> I'm currently dating a white guy and he used to wear polo shirts but has since graduated to cardigans and I'm also into that. <laughs> um, yeah, so we are, like, he thinks that we're in a serious relationship. But to me, it's not that serious. <laughs> because um, he hasn't posted about me on Instagram yet. <laughs> and that's a milestone. <laughs> I don't know if you know, but <laughs> it's not serious till you post about it on Instagram. That's a joke. <laughs> that's a joke. <laughs> We're in a serious relationship, and I know this <laughs> because we, we split the rent together, you know? <laughs> yeah, we're together for the right reasons <laughs> to split the rent. <laughs> if you find someone that is willing to split the rent with you, please hold them, love them, <laughs> and never let them go. <laughs> Because it's expansive. <laughs> oh, no. And <laughs> um, what else can I tell you? Oh, yeah. So my boyfriend's obviously white. And he is wealthy and privileged. And he comes from a wealthy and privileged family. Um, when I go to his family dinners, I feel incredibly awkward. <laughs> because I'm the only brown one. And his mom is a doctor, and his brother is a doctor, and his sister is a doctor. <laughs> so one time they were talking about their first day in the OR, like the operating room, and I was like, haha, polo shirts, haha. <laughs> That's all I had to contribute to the conversation. Yeah, it's really hard to connect. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, as a comic, I say a lot of things that they as doctors would just never say. Like, I'm broke. <laughs> and a doctor would never say that. <laughs> Another thing that I say is, I killed last night. <laughs> Like, I say that about sets that I believe that I killed, you know, like, metaphorically. <laughs> and I hope that they never utter those words. <laughs> that would be quite unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. Um, another thing that I do that they would never do, like, you know, because they're doctors, um, is I do drugs. <laughs> I do drugs. Um, I did drugs for the last, for the first time, sorry, um, last year, and I smoked some weed, and I felt incredibly guilty about it. <laughs> I don't know why. And you know, when you do something um, bad, you justify it by not doing something worse. So I smoked some weed, and I was like, well. At least it's not MDMA. And then I took some MDMA. <laughs> and I was like, well, at least it's not cocaine. And then I accidentally took some cocaine. <laughs> and I was like, well, at least I don't overshare on Instagram. <laughs> That's worse. 
But then I realized that I also overshare on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Please follow me. <laughs> I need likes. That's how I live. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. So I am a really amazing girlfriend <laughs> to my boyfriend. Um, I make him homemade granola for breakfast. Um, and then I also make his lunches and his dinners. And that is very motherly. <laughs> that is some motherly shit. <laughs> um, but I kind of want to try being a fatherly girlfriend instead. You know, like, I'm just going to start ignoring him. <laughs> and being emotionally unavailable. <laughs> and then I'll just take him fishing on the weekend to make up for it. <laughs> That's a good solution, right? <laughs> um, I'm a feminist. Okay. <laughs> I was expecting a larger response, but Okay, I'm a feminist. <laughs> great, great. Okay, calm down. <laughs> um, and that just means, like, when I say that in other rooms, at other shows, people don't understand that. Like, as a feminist, that just means that I want equality between men and women, equal treatment. And as a woman, I'm just, I've decided that I'm going to start doing things that men do and demand equal treatment. Like, I'm going to start barbecuing. <laughs> and I'm going to start captioning all my photos. Saturdays are for the boys. <laughs> I'm also going to start mansplaining. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm also going to start asking men inappropriate questions the same way that men ask me inappropriate questions, like, what are you? <laughs> How much money do you make? <laughs> That's inappropriate. <laughs> um, also, will you marry me? <laughs> That's inappropriate. Okay, that's my time. Thanks for listening to my TED Talk. Up next is Selena Bowen, a wonderful poet whose work has appeared in numerous literary journals including Room, CV2, and The New Quarterly. She won the Gold National Magazine Award for Poetry in 2017 and will be included in Best Canadian Poetry 2018. Here's Selena. Um, that last set was amazing. <laughs> I was cracking up. I got all distracted. All right. Um, so, Tansei Selina Natsiga-san, uh, hello, my name is Selina. Waterhen First Nation, Ochiwie Keate Nukam, Flying Dust First Nation, Ochiwie Keate Numasum. Um, I'm in the beginning stages of learning um, Cree, so I apologize for any mispronunciation, but if you speak, just, um, I love getting corrected and and learning with others. Um, so I didn't grow up um, with my birth dad's family. My grandmother on my birth dad's side is originally from Waterhen First Nation. And um, <clears throat> my grandfather is originally from Flying Dust First Nation. Um, and my mother is a settler to this land. So I always uh, like to contextualize just so you know sort of where I'm coming from when I'm reading my poems. Um, I have four poems for you tonight. Uh, and the first poem is the word for mood in Cree. So it's titled Tansiga Itama Chi Niga. Do you see the little slivers of us all over circling water? The spot on my jacket where feathers slip out and spill back into the world. Mood is full of holes. Maybe that's why they invented a ring to change with your heart, to measure how close everything is connected to everything else, how our organs suck heat when we cry. 
My legacy is small rooms, food courts, a cell phone charged like a small bowl of soup beside my bed. Is this a story I can share? The first time we met, all nerves and forgiveness, all how bright this room, the moon, uh, who is who and how are they and what are they like. You said, because we're Cree, we should be good with directions, and we laughed at that, circling the blo same block again and again, looking for somewhere to eat. We were two bodies on Google Maps, a blue dot at the crosswalk. Blue, the color of Gatorade. Optimism all salted up, a sky without smoke, the two ball and pool. You taught me how to angle the queue one day in December, to think in shadows. The guys there, you knew them all by name. You introduced me as daughter shyly, and I turned amber, violet blue girl in the hall. So that's, um, I forgot, I had a, I got confused for a second because on my notes I have written like talk about mood rings and I was like, wait, that's not the start of the poem, but <laughs> I meant to talk about mood rings, which I didn't do. Um, yeah, so <clears throat> that poem, I'll retroactively talk about mood rings now, um, was inspired partly about mood rings and I feel like I always have mood rings and um, always have I have had a mood ring like when I was young and I have one now and they never work properly like they're always purple and it always really annoys me so this was sort of my dream imagination like if mood rings actually did change colors properly to reflect our moods um, this next poem uh, I'm gonna read is called on the line and it starts with a quote that I got from the Globe and Mail um, call and so the quote is Trudeau takes big risk with trans mountain deal but it was his only decent option that's from the Globe and Mail, um, May 29th, 2018. <clears throat> One billion. In the news, the earth shakes thousands of hallways. A new drug slows memory loss. A man on the ferry elevator wraps a green tarp around the water tank he bought for his truck. Labels it water tank, just in case anyone asks. Trans Mountain files a six-month construction schedule. This summer, like last, so many fires. Two billion. Sometimes grief is a blister, a small pocket of the body trying to leave you. Three billion. Good economy is all about risk. Earnest last chances being an asset according to, you can flip a pipeline like you flip a house. The word ownership stacked together with money and language and bitumen. The question is, does it do we float or sink? Four billion. My birth father once gave me a card with each birthday he had missed written inside. He was hired by Big Oil once to sit in the room and be the Indian okay with it all. Didn't feel right, he said to me in the car. We drove highway like years, our lives side by side all this time. 4.5 billion. In the car that day, I asked him what he was most afraid of. I wanted to know whether he'd ever been scared of his own anger. Language being a field, two mountain ranges, ocean that creaks and lives. We take longer to heal separated from the ones we love. We are more than a performance. We are a poem of affirmations, dreaming of sons, daughters, bright flames. Um, great. Uh, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm having, I will, okay, so full disclosure, I forgot my glasses, and I'm actually having a really hard time reading what's on my phone. So thank you all for being so lovely <laughs> and patient with me. Um, this next poem is um, about, yeah, trying to learn language and stumbling through that a little bit. Um, the animacy of floods. The way an ice cube melts in the pocket between your teeth and your cheek. I want to soften into my own body, move beyond this world into the now of gentle futures. The nows of summer all glitter and hope, scotch and joy signs and nihiawewin neon LED love. What I mean to say is I meant to make something more of myself today. To be a bay is to be water living. I can't just say I want to learn the words ground and love in nihiawewin. 
and nihi away when things are being blue or being green. And inside my fridge, last night, looks like circles of creamed fat gone sour, pizza in a box, a jar of pickled juice, half a lime. Inside my mouth is a flooding apartment where a fig plant grows a mushroom at its root, where my spirit circles the floor, mispronouncing words and laughing with the snap and wave of breath everywhere, cupboards and salt floating through this world down moss-soaked stairs. How grammar knows us, how I'm learning to hold it together and undo myself in the city, to take my tongue off and put it on again, a bright neon pink sign. Um, and so I have one more poem for you guys. You have been so lovely. Thank you so much. Shout out also to Cole. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, it's always so wonderful to see community come together, and that's thank you for creating that space. Um, so this final poem, um, I wrote partly in honor of a friend, um, Jessica Johns, who and, and other friends too, who I'm a little bit of a dramatic person. I can be very dramatic, actually. <laughs> little understatement there. Um, and I really love have people. I really need and love having people in my life who can tell me to tr like suck it up, like get it, you know, get over it, get on, get on, let's get going. Um, so in honor of them, <laughs> this poem, and in honor of Jess, this poem is called "Suck It Up" with a heart emoji. Um, but also, I want to make a little note that this poem also pays pays homage to um, my love of gravel and specifically suppository gravel. <laughs> No, 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 like, hear me out. Okay, so, <laughs> if you've ever had a hangover and you wake up and you just, like, can't eat or whatever, just suppository gravel, and I'm telling you, it is a, it is a lifesaver. I have been able to go to work, like, you know, haven't been able to get to bed, and then, boom, I'm good. Um, yeah, so that's my advice to you all, and I'll leave on that wonderful note of suppository butt gravel. Okay. Um, so this poem, <laughs> this poem is called Suck It Up. Heart emoji. <laughs> <clears throat> Nausea is smack, is the spine of an island cut for gravel, a pink pill being a miracle in suppository form. My birth dad always signs off blessings. Bless this ever-changing Tuesday, this city I am learning to unname. Inside the bar, I crowd myself clean again, body a feedback feedback loop, a gif of a kitten eating an eyelash, a cell in the universe remaking an animal. Jess, with her hands on the table holding water, reminds me, love is when you laugh at yourself and mean it. Take what you're given and give it. I was swept back and forth over a road in December, this life being an accident, a gift, a badly timed road trip in snow. If you could hear me, I would whisper, I just wanted to be near you. I just wanted to undo this grief on our hands, melt the ice in the bucket by the door. Oh, da ta ta ta, suck it in as air. All these emoji shrugs remind me doubt can live in the body like a town shaking itself to sleep. I've learned when you buy a knife at the mall, you get one sharpening for free. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Our final performer of the evening was Kevin Chong. Kevin is the author of six books of fiction and nonfiction, most recently The Plague from Arsenal Pulp Press. This year his work has appeared in The Rumpus, The Globe and Mail, and The Guardian. Here's Kevin. What's up? Hey Nick. Uh, thanks so, uh, yeah, it's not a bad height. Uh, shout out to Cole for organizing a wonderful event. Uh, I feel like this is like the kind of cool event that I dreamed of going to 20 years ago, and I'm here now as a ghost. <laughs> Why didn't you pay attention to me? Um, I am uh, really honored to be here, and what wonderful performances from Carrie and Savannah and Selena and Jackie. They moved me and made me laugh, like, like within like, 30 seconds, it's amazing. And to call me a performer is sort of like, you, you use uh, scare quotes. 
Um, I'm going to ramble a little bit because I feel like I should because this is like a, a looser event than my reading, which is kind of like uh, just me reading. Um, <laughs> I'm not like uh, cursed with this sort of fear of public speaking. What I'm cursed with is a very weak bladder. And so... <laughs> So let me tell you some stories about my weak bladder that span until today. Uh, uh, I, I teach at UBC and I teach these lecture classes that are 90 minutes long and there's actually a couple of students from my lecture classes. And you may or may not know this, uh, students, uh, but I sometimes play a YouTube cl clip and it's because I need it there in case I need to go to the bathroom really quickly. It's like 90 seconds long. I can just run to the bathroom. Uh, second anecdote is uh, my father died in 2014, and he had a celebration of life. And I, I was supposed to give like remarks at a celebration of life, but I was actually taking a piss because I think I got the I got the order of the the readers wrong. And my I was actually in the at the head, and my phone started ringing. My brother's like, "Where are you? You, you need to give a eulogy for your dad who died." So uh, that happened, and finally today. Uh, a student called me uh, this morning to, to discuss like doing an MFA, and I was more than happy to talk to her. But I, in the morning, I, I cycle through like a pot of coffee, and it's just sort of like prime urination time. And and so uh, I I called her, and and then she had she had like so many questions. I thought there'd be like three or four. But she had follow-ups, and you know, sometimes you, you want to end a conversation, but you say, you know, I'm going to say something else, and it might lead to a follow-up, but I'm going to say it and hope that they don't follow up, even though I want this conversation to end. And I would say the thing, and then she would ask another question, and, and I set myself up for that. And so this was, I, I was like pacing around on the phone, and finally I said to her, you know, I just have to do this one thing and, and, uh, and I'll call you back in 30 seconds. And, and I was peeing and something happened. I had my phone in my pocket and I, I was peeing and then like the phone started ringing. <laughs> and then I heard someone pick up, hello? And then and, and I was still peeing. I just, I just <laughs> hung up. So I gave her like an audio dick pic. So I, I could get fired for this. And I'm telling you all this to... Uh, alleviate my conscience. Um, so this is, uh, this is my not very funny book. Uh, I try not to be funny in my book, you know, like, and because uh, you kind of you lose like a lot of respect, you know, among the literary people. I used to like being the, the funny writer, and I, but I realized I wasn't that funny. Like you put me next to a comedian, not very funny. You put me next to somebody writing about genocide, I'm a bucket of laughs, right? So, um, so I tried to like write a serious book, uh, for, and for better or worse, uh, I wrote the book that I did. And it's uh, based on uh, a novel by Albert Camus. Literally, if you did something like this in one of my classes, you'd get an F. Like I took... <laughs> I took the storyline, character names, like certain scenes from a very famous novel. And I, at one point I took like uh, the Sparks notes of it and I, I did like a find and replace and I replaced Albert Camus, the original author, with Kevin Chong. And, <laughs> and so like, uh, but I, I, you know, it's postmodernism. So that, that, that's my <laughs> excuse. Uh, I have a scene that I normally go to that is like I'm really confident about, but my wife is here and she's seen me read this eight times, so I'm not going to read it. I'm going to read something entirely new. Um, it's a, the, the, the book is about a city, Vancouver, that is uh, overrun by the bubonic plague and the, the city is quarantined and it's about how people sort of react in those situations. Um, you know, like this is written. This is based on a novel written in 1947, so it wasn't a dystopian thriller. But people have been uh, reading it, thinking it's going to be that, and it's not. It's just about people who are kind of bored, and uh, and their their spiritual godfathers are like Frenchmen who smoke cigarettes uh, to their death. Um, 
And this is a scene uh, uh, like near the beginning of the novel in which a character uh, wants to leave a party. And I'm just going to leave it at that. And this is kind of like it sort of sets up the mood of the novel and the idea that people are wanting to get out of places. But it doesn't really refer to the bubonic plague at all. A party guest led them into Grossman's apartment, which was lit entirely by what seemed to be an assortment of scented candles. Cho offered her shoes to the pile that grew by the door. Grossman threw her jacket on an air mattress in her bedroom. The apartment was ample but half empty. Cho saw a home full of missing objects, a space where an armchair might have been placed, a vacancy on the kitchen counter from a displaced coffee maker, the heavy and severe curtains belonged to a night person. At the kitchen table, Cho loaded her plate from a messy platter and filled her plastic glass from a box of red wine. The best of Leonard Cohen was playing on iPod speakers. In the living room, the dozen or so death enthusiasts sat in a circle on the floor, their eyes closed. Cho thought they were in conducting a seance, but it was a game of werewolf that had just started. She'd played this game before. It was called Mafia when she participated, but it was essentially the same. The game's narrator asked the two werewolves to open their eyes. Next, they pointed to the villager they wanted to kill. Then the village doctor opened her eyes and tried to guess the next victim and save them. She failed. When this was all done, all the participants were asked to open their eyes. Dawn has broken, the narrator said, and there has been another casualty in the village. Everyone else had to guess who the werewolves were. Accusations, misdirection, and disavowals ensued. People have fled their homelands to escape such conditions, Cho thought. Anything can be passed off as fun, and every nightmare must be play-acted afterward. Cho only editorialized when she was in a bad mood. I would have sat out this game even if they asked me to play. There's too much tension. Cho hadn't noticed Grossman standing next to her. She held a glass of punch that was filled to the top with the ice that she had brought to her own party. The way she held the glass at chest level seemed to suggest she was holding it for someone. Is it hard to get a cab from here, Cho asked. I'm feeling the jet lagged. Grossman said she would call one for her. But first, I need to tell you the rest of my story. She grabbed Cho's upper arm and led her to an alcove with a computer. It was a quiet place to relate her woes as Suzanne wafted in the background. Cho was not particularly forthright about her own feelings. Friends described her default expression as haughty and disdainful, and yet people always confided in her. First, she asked questions in order to avoid talking about herself. She never passed judgment. To offer approval or criticism felt like overreach. For those who had guilty consciences, like a group of grave robbers she once interviewed in Arizona, she granted absolution. Their unhappiness was externalized into a paper ball, and she was the waste basket. This was Grossman's story. She had met her partner, Janet, for the first time 25 years ago, when Janet was still in middle school. I was her camp counselor, she said. I made sure she went to bed on time and was wearing enough sunscreen. Grossman had recently come out and wore t-shirts that celebrated her newly acknowledged sexuality. One had a rainbow flag on it, another featured an illustration of Gertrude Stein, the morning after parents' welcome day, she was called in by the camp administrator who suggested she make wider, wiser sartorial choices. In a fury, Grossman quit. When she met Janet in a bar nearly a decade later, she neither recognized nor remembered her. That came later. What drew Grossman to Janet was her strong nose, dark, unruly eyebrows, and a resting downturned mouth, features that would age well. She looked like the younger version of a portrait that might hang in a haunted house, she said. She seemed mature beyond her age, but she was being herself. They had, Grossman admitted, a blisteringly sexual relationship in the first couple of months. It was hot, she said. We were two people used to getting sex like twice in one week and then living off the crumbs of those memories for another eight months until our next opportunity. It bounced between hostels and beachside campsites in Mexico for two months, then Janet fell ill with Lyme disease, and they grew closer during her recovery. Grossman loved caring for her. She even considered training as a nurse, but she didn't want to go back to school. 
Janet, however, still wanted to learn. She was a painter, and Grossman supported her through her MFA. She deferred her own creative dreams for her wage work in tourism. Grossman's father needed to be cared for, so they arranged to live with him. They saved, uh, this saved them enough money that Janet no longer needed to toil as a teaching assistant. By watching YouTube videos, Grossman learned to fix leaky faucets and replace toilet bowl stoppers. After the corner store downstairs was closed, Janet used it briefly as a studio space, but the light was poor. And it was like trying to see to the bottom of a bowl of chicken broth. At the beginning of the year, Janet's career had broken through to find an audience. After nearly two decades of painting, she won a major award, was profiled in an influential glossy magazine, and found a New York dealer. It all came at once. In some ways, she no longer needed me to care for her. If we were eating out, I didn't have to pick up the tab, Grossman told Cho. But then there would be a deadline for a big show, and the dealer was a shark who would drop her if she flopped. Her anxiety levels peaked, so she needed me more. However, now she resented it. One time, the day before one of her openings, we had a big fight because I wanted to wear the same suit I'd worn for her last show. When the exhibition turned out to be a hit, she apologized. She moved out a few days later. Unlike most of her contemporaries who explored mixed media and abstraction, Janet was a figurative painter. Her watercolors were inspired by both comic books and Mexican folk art, and her subjects were entirely young women, friends and family members in outdoor landscapes inspired by trips along the province's north coast. Grossman appeared in a number of Janet's paintings, but only as a stylized version of herself. She was painted in the Gertrude Stein t-shirt, but not in the way she looked when she was a camp counselor. My hair is asymmetrical in those portraits, but I didn't have that hairdo until years later. Plus, I'm the only one who's fully clothed. Everyone else is topless or pantless. It's like she doesn't want to imagine me naked. Either that or she doesn't want to show the world the woman who she saw naked. Cho choked her head. I don't think that's what she meant, she told Roseman. It's exactly what she means, she thought to herself. She realized, again, she was in a terrible mood. Now that Janet was gone, Grossman said that she volunteered for many community art events. I'm taking a comedy course too, she said. I've always wanted to try stand-up. Cho noted that Grossman had not attempted a single joke that night while introducing any of the presenters and that she seemed almost divorced from any sense of humor. Months later, when she had a standing order at a restaurant in Vancouver, when the city had been quarantined and she had seen people seriously ill, Cho remembered the restlessness of her first night with yearning. She yearned for her agency. By that time, she considered Grossman hilarious and endearingly damaged. Someone at the party found Grossman and asked her to change the music to something more upbeat. Cho chose this moment to leave the party without a farewell. She crept to the front hall where she attempted to find her shoes from the bottom of the large pile. She took a picture of the shoes and would post it when she got home. She thought of a pithy caption. This party is ghost busted. Once she was outside on the landing, she glanced across to the door of Grossman's neighbor, Farhad Khan. The door was slightly ajar. The note had been changed. I have killed myself, it read. Call the police. You do not need to see this. The floorboards creaked as Cho inched toward the door. She could hear someone gro uh, groaning. That meant he, Farhad, was alive. She heard a crash, the sound of feet a body, and then the smack of a head hitting the floor. She jumped back. She would return to Grossman's apartment and make her go in and see what happened. Her heart outraced the lazy beat of the 80s party music that followed Leonard Cohen. Cho spotted Grossman at the far end of the living room, her glass full of ice. Cho needed to get to her, but the people in the room and the jovial, tipsy mood within it made that distance feel impassable. She edged around the wall toward Grossman at the game of Werewolf finally concluded. The remaining participants opened their eyes. The final innocent villager had been killed, and one partygoer, the remaining werewolf, still looked circumspect. I warned everyone, one of the previously limited players complained, but now we're all dead. Thank you very much. I would just like to take one more moment, please, 
to let you know that this is the end of the show. Thanks again to all the storytellers, Future Star, The Lido for having us, Matt Crisco for recording us, No Fun Radio for playing us, and you, dear listener, for listening. We'll leave you with Future Star's Fall Asleep in a Dream. Video, a telephone, a message on a screen. See your face, I hear your voice, I get the things you mean. You say when I turn it off, I'm still inside your head. So when all the lights are out, I think of you instead. I am in your arms, you sleep right beside me, keep me safe. dream.